This morning's scripture reading from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. We are jumping ahead to chapter 2 for this Sunday, Colossians 2, and then we're going to scurry back all right, to chapter 1 next week and finish it. In uh, developing a plan here for standing up to inevitable pressures, temptations, trials, conflicts, Paul begins with the end in mind. That's how he kind of develops his argument, his plan here. He begins with the end in mind, then he works his way back towards the hard work necessary to get there. And that's a wise strategy, right? It's uh, beginning with the end in mind is the second of what Stephen Covey calls the seven habits of highly effective people. Begin with the end in mind. Then you have to have buy-in to a, a strategy that will help achieve that end goal. If you get buy-in to that strategy, then you have to think through and commit to the hard work, the practical steps that will help you carry out that strategy and get to your end goal. Now, if that sounds messy, complicated, unrealistic for the normal everyday life you live, look, we do it all the time. We have this process. In fact, uh, my wife Katie and I do it for our five and seven-year-olds, uh, Mason and Gage. Uh, Mason, seven-year-old, Gage, our five-year-old. Our end goal or hope for our children is that first they would trust their lives to Jesus. That's our, our ultimate hope, our ultimate goal. And then also grow then by his grace as they share that grace with others. Honestly, they could be, whatever they do in life, they could be a street sweeper, uh, they could be a doctor, they could be whatever it might be, that's our hope for them. More than anything. That's very similar to our, our church mission statement, which is to introduce people to Jesus. Here at Sunrise, we want to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by grace. By his great love for them. Now, that's our end goal. Part of our strategy in aiding a genuine confrontation with Jesus is individual and team sports. That's right. Now look, we do, we do family worship 
Each night we sing songs, we, te- we go through scripture, we teach them how to pray. We started to do this, it's been really fruitful actually. Uh, we have some monthly Christ-centered family traditions we try. We do that stuff, all right, and, uh, but we also do sports. And now uh, you might be wondering, look, Pastor O, I've talked to you before, and are you sure you don't have your kids play sports so you can vicariously live through them as your age increases and your athleticism diminishes? <laughs> well, yes, but that's reason number two, all right? Reason number one <laughs> is that sports creates a multitude of real-life scenarios that, frankly be so bold to say this, schools in general, I'm not stealing out of school, but schools in general protect them from a lot of these real life scenarios because of things like grade inflation and, and an obsession over protecting self-esteem. And the great thing about playing with a ball is that the ball never lies, all right, and it protects no one, all right, if you kick the ball in your own goal, all right, I mean, you can't, you can't save, a, you can't tell a child, oh, it's okay, really, that's success. You're just being creative, right? I mean, that's, you're just, that's just <laughs> a momentary failure. And, and children got to deal in sports with failure and success with teammates. And let me tell you, that combination, you talk about Jesus a lot. Well, whether you agree with this strategy or not, we got to get our kids to buy into the notion that sports will help them and we've tried a number of things. You know, I've, I've statements like, hey, if you want to be a real man, you stop crying and hit the ball. <laughs> I've tried that with varying success. But, come on, you don't really think I do that. There's two, there's not, there weren't enough laughs there. I mean, think, like, you guys really think. Hmm, I need to change a little. All right, so, but mostly what I do is I, I really do share stories from my own sort of uh, successes and failures in my own sporting life, especially as a kid, I just kind of casually share that, and that helps them, oh, oh, dad, you did this, or, <clears throat> and I frequently tell them that they're better than I was at that age, also a common strategy, <clears throat> but finally, they have to put in the hard work to carry out that strategy, right, and, and now they're five and seven, so, I mean, I'm not putting them through summer two-a-days, all right, until they're at least 10 years old, but, but, you know, we do make a point to practice one sport virtually every day, and we do it by, you know, having some fun with it and playing games with it and this sort of thing. The Apostle Paul does the same thing here with the Church of Colossae, with a much more important issue. Facing trials, temptations, pressures that people will inevitably face, he begins with the end in mind, which is this. Look at me, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, to abound in thanksgiving. And the end in mind, Paul has in here, is an unshakable rootedness. That nothing can shake you. That, and Paul goes horticulture here, right? Gives us a picture of an oak or, or a mahogany tree that has long since buried its roots into fertile soil. By faith, it can withstand the pressures of heat, cold, wind, rain, whatever is thrown at it because of its rootedness and our rootedness in Christ. And one of my favorite chapters of any book is in a, a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and it's entitled, this chapter is entitled These Inward Trials. He says this, it's a little little bit of a long passage, but I'm going to quote it and put it up on the screen. Often the start 
of the new life in Christ is marked by a great emotional joy, striking providence. You see God reach into your life in amazing ways. Remarkable answers to prayer and immediate fruitfulness. But as that person grows stronger and they're able to bear more fruit, God exercises them in a tougher school. He exposes them to as much testing by the pressure of opposition and discouraging influences as they are able to bear. And thus he builds our character, strengthens our faith, and prepares us to help others. Makes sense, right? But, goes on to say, the Christian who has been told that the normal Christian life is unshadowed and trouble-free can only conclude that he must have lapsed from the normal. Something's gone wrong, he will say. It isn't working anymore. And his question will be, how can it be made to work again? This idea that the Christian life, it doesn't seem to be working. How can I get it to work again? I mean, how many times have we thought, I mean, I think each of us, if you have walked with Christ, have asked this question, how can I really get it to work again? What do I need to do to, to light the fire again, to get it started? It'll make a difference in my life. We've all wondered this, and that's why Paul writes as he does, going on to verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, what happened is for the Colossians, these little bits of half-truths, they were receiving these semi-spiritual saints, these empty platitudes were both the pressures and trials. They were both the trials and the potential solution to get Christianity to work again in their lives. They thought of it as just the potential solution. But really, it was a trial coming into their life. But they didn't recognize it as such. These little sayings, these little truths that they would soak in gradually and so talk and chatter was abundant in this church. People talked about it as this very small church. All right, I mentioned this before when we, we started out the series that Colossae was the smallest city, and this is probably the smallest church to whom Paul writes. And you know, small churches, small places, people talk. Talk is abundant. And I would submit we live in an era and on an island in which words, man, they matter. Right? We, we don't live somewhere with a large labor force with great, because the greatest natural resources of turtle meat and mahogany wood have long since lost a man or have been exhausted on this island. All right, so there is talk, civil service, lawyers, accountants, teachers, people in the service sector, communication necessary. But what happens with intermingled with communication in everyday jobs and everyday life are these simple life philosophies, which a few weeks back I called Facebook advice or Facebook philosophies. Right? You see them all the time on Facebook and they're said all the time in real life. And these were the trials and temptations. People begin to adopt them into their life and live by them. Things like let go and let God. I'll give you a few examples from the, a few weeks ago. I can't go through all of them, but whatever works. Advice like, hey, you've got to stick up for yourself, or you deserve better. All these kinds of sayings that creep into our lives, and we believe them and make major decisions by them. 
these quietly become potential solutions to get Christianity working again. And Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by these kinds of little half-truths, semi-spiritual sayings. This verb actually, take captive, is a nautical term. It's pretty cool. That means to carry off the booty. All right, like the booty of a ship. All right, careful there. Right, to carry off the booty. In other words, <clears throat> pirating. So we live still in an age of pirating, according to Paul. That these simple life philosophies, this piecemeal advice would steal away our trust in Christ. Take you captive. Degrade your ship. So what do you do about it? Tell you what, such advice is persistent. So it won't do to just try to avoid it. To try to say, oh, that's not true. We need to buy into something or someone else that works. Not just avoid what doesn't work. Paul basically says here, you've got two options. You can buy into philosophy, or you can buy into power. These little bits of philosophy, this little bit of advice, or you can buy into power. So you've got the power of positive thinking, or actual power. So Paul says here, and then let's look at this. Instead of going through line by line here, verses 19 through 13, or not, sorry, 9 through 13, Pay attention to the pattern of verbs that Paul uses. Right, pay attention to the, to the pattern of verbs that Paul uses in verses 9 through 13 in making this point of power over philosophy. First you have filled, to be filled in Christ, verse 10. Circumcised, an action that indicated an outward sign of God's changing you. Your old life is buried with Him, verse 12. You are raised with Him, verse 12. With him whom God raised from the dead. Then you have made alive together with Christ in verse 13. You see, this is not coincidental. All of these are power verbs. Power, power, power. Filled, circumcised, buried, raised, raised, made alive. In Christ we see power over philosophy. Change over the merely hypothetical and theoretical. And we're to know these things, Paul says, from experience. Christ should have done this in you. For me, after I trusted my life to Christ, I mean, a lot of change didn't, you know, was gradual. It didn't happen right away. One thing did happen pretty quickly. Uh, my temper. I had a John McEnroe-like temper. All right, I mean, uh, my tennis rackets felt the pain as did my golf clubs. Uh, I, in fact, I, I perfected the sport of golf club discus. You know, I could like, I could really hurl it far, you know, and get it to land in the ground with the club head. But, but after trusting Christ, it, it was amazing. Because of this power of the good news, that changed basically right away. I mean, while comp competing, Christ replaced anxiousness and anger with a calm I had never before known. Now, this was power above theoretical, above philosophy. And that might not work the same way for each of you. I mean, a lot of change is gradual, but I'll say this. Some of you have trusted Christ in the last couple of years, while others remember trusting Christ as a young child. No matter, if there is no change, there is a problem. If getting taller 
you know, uh, sitting in church without complaining and finally eating your full plate of broccoli, you know, is the only thing that has changed in your life since trusting Christ, it's okay to question whether you've genuinely trusted your life to Christ and to the good news I'm going to tell you about. Better to question that now than not really trust Him at all. That hasn't happened. If you haven't seen that change, I'm going to encourage you to consider trusting your life to Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going to get the real eye-opener here in this passage, which goes against everything we've experienced in life where we're going to spend most of our time in this. All right, so we have an end goal, an end in mind. You've, we've bought into this strategy that power is preferable to philosophy. And now we're ready to put in the hard work. Only the hard work has already been done. What do you mean? I mean, every, every end I've had in mind, every vision for my life has required blood, sweat, and tears. But the difference with Christianity is the blood, sweat, and tears were accomplished by someone else. Everything needed to persevere, to allow no threat or reality to move or shake you. To set your face like flint in the face of fear has already been accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The good news of Christ's work on the cross contains in it power over death in all its forms. In all its forms, and we'll talk about that. And all the hard work has already been done. It's already been hammered out. Let's look at this more closely. First, the cross is love. Look with me, first of all, in verse 13. Where Paul says, look, you have been forgiven all your trespasses. God has forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so we have two vivid illustrations that Paul uses here. I mean, these next few verses are just chock full of illustrations. We've got two here. All right? The first is this, that Jesus Christ has canceled a record of debt that stood against us. In particular, this, this phrase historically connotates a signed certificate of death in which the signature signing it legalized and permanently recorded the debt on a promissory note signed by the debtor. Into history, had to be paid off. In other words, Paul gives us a picture that states something like this. My condemnation before Christ's work on the cross was equally as certain as my salvation after Christ's work on the cross. I want to say this again. Think about this. My condemnation before Christ's work on the cross was equally as certain as my salvation after Christ's work on the cross. Have we ever considered that? Maybe you're in that state now, but for those of you who trusted Christ, you think, man, I was, I was in trouble before I knew Christ. No, no, no. You weren't in trouble. The surety you feel as a daughter or son of the Father is the same surety of condemnation, the same surety of indebtedness before Christ. It should make us all the more grateful for Him. It was signed, it was sealed, it was delivered. The debt was in stone. And this is hammered out by the second illustration used here, that the debt 
this debt Jesus Christ set aside, nailing it to the cross, is in verse 14. Back in Paul's time, when a criminal was crucified, a notice was fastened upon the cross by the Roman authority, Roman authorities, announcing the crime for which the criminal had been executed. Right? So you would nail, this person was executed for this crime. And they would announce it for anyone who wanted to see. This image is being used here to say, what will the final declaration be about you? What will be written on your tombstone? To put it in more modern vernacular. We often think about what's going to be written on a tombstone in terms of notions of legacy or thoughts that you did some good things that helped people. In God's eyes, though, you can get rid of those things. In God's eyes, your tombstone either is going to declare indebted or debt forgiven. That's it. Indebted or debt forgiven. Let me explain this a little more. If, if you believe either, either vaguely or intuitively that a monotheistic being, this a one God, gives life, and, and whether, I don't, I don't care for right now whether you believe that's through an evolutionary process that God put into motion or that he created each individual life out of clay kind of idea. doesn't matter. What Paul says here blows to bits the idea that we will be judged according to how much good we did versus how much bad we did, how much ill we did. On the scales, it's just, you know, I did a lot of good that outweighed my bad. But if you believe that some divine being gave life in some form, then what Paul says here blows that to bits because essentially he has given you a debit card. And when you do well according to his laws, when you obey them, you are simply doing what you're supposed to do with the life he's given you. In fact, Jesus talks, tells a story about this in Luke 17. It's the parable of the unworthy servants. And he concludes it by saying, look, I've only done what I was supposed to do. I'm an unworthy servant. Because it's God who's given you this life. But when you do, when you think, when you plan, when you are motivated by ill, you spend his life. And you immediately go into the red. Because he loves you and wants to be with you forever. Jesus took on a burden greater than any national debt so that you might live. To give you a choice. That choice is this. You can either take your debit card to the grave or you can take Jesus. It's yours or his. But the cross is also power. Look with me in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame, to, to ridicule, to mocking, by triumphing over them in him, in his death. We have another powerful illustration here referring to Christ defeating all the invisible satanic forces of the world that exist. This illustration comes from Roman military history. Uh, when a rare Roman triumph occurred. Now, the Romans defeated a lot of nations in their time, but it was rare you accomplished a triumph. There was all these qualifications. You had to take a certain amount of land. You had to win by a certain, amount, a certain margin. And you had to take a certain amount of royalty. And if, if all these things came together, you had this triumphal procession. Because the Romans not only wished to win, they wanted to send reverberations throughout the lands. If you fought and you lost, 
against the Romans, your people would be humiliated for generations. I mean, this isn't just a nice, oh, we won, let's shake hands, come work for us in our homes. No, this was humiliation, generations. The victorious general would march through the streets of Rome all the way to the capital. Right, with these, this throng enjoying this. And, and, and next, of course, came the politicians. They wanted to get their credit. Politicians came in, and then, then you had these trumpeters come through who announced every little thing that was coming next. So, for instance, one of the things that came next was the spoils of the conquered land, the treasures and the, the rare jewels of the conquered land and natural resources. And, and then came, this was amazing, then came painted portraits of the land to show all the people who didn't go off the war. And, and then, after this, it keeps going, miniature models of things like conquered ships, citadels, fortresses. They would bring these in this parade. It was like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, or the Rose Bowl Parade. Except, you know, these are the people we killed and conquered. All right? And here are their fortresses, their ships. We're going to show you, and not just show you, but show those who survived. Show our enemies who survived because after a sacrifice finally came, the captured soldiers, the princes, the generals marching in chains who not only were looking at all these treasures of their lands that were just repainted, you know, refigured by the Romans, but they were beaten along the way by what were called lictors or punishers who would beat them with rods as they were going through the parade. All this to music and singing. All right, now what a bizarre thing, right? I mean, but they wanted to send a signal. Not only are we going to win, you're going to be humiliated. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be open to shame. Why this illustration? Because through the cross, you can put away the only Jesus you may have ever known. That's, you know, the blue-eyed Jesus, purple sash, holding a cup of cold water in one hand, a lamb on one knee, a small child on the other knee, all while forgiving people who are mean to him. This is the Jesus of Revelation 1, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose voice is like an ocean tempest. This is the Jesus who in justice and righteousness mocks Satan and his minions, and he mocks death itself. I mean, he scorns them and humiliates them in open shame. Sometimes we think of Jesus only being so gentle and kind, buddy Jesus. But here's a Jesus who just doesn't hold back. He lays down the smack. Open shame. What does he do? He strips away the greatest weapon that Satan has. Death and its sway over people. So he does through the cross. He takes away death and its sway over people for those who trust in Christ and his death. How does he do this? He uses their most powerful weapon, death, to totally humiliate them. One commentator put it this way, uh, the hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God, and though they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about His death through crucifixion, but unwittingly they had been mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means He had devised for the accomplishment of His plan. Right? So Satan, his whole life, works to bring people, to bring the creation, to bring everyone to death. 
and to put death in all its forms in this world. And so he thinks, that's what I'm going to do to the Savior. The Son of God put him to death. Oh, but the joke's on him. And Jesus can now mock that. Say, you are ashamed. You are wrong. God's people will be victorious. So we spoke about last week, Jesus is, the, as Jesus is the firstborn. Remember this from Colossians 1? As such, he assumed the property rights of death and hell. He owns it now. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Christ too shared in their humanity so that by his death, by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He takes it over. Satan can no longer use death as his primary scare tactic because they belong to Christ. Death belongs to Christ who is eternal life. He holds the keys. By the way, I mean death in its broadest sense. Satan can't scare you with death in its broadest sense if you know Christ. Decay, sickness, bitterness, weariness, sadness, and finally complete and utter separation from him who is life. And out of fear, what do we do with these things? We buy more insurance. We obsess over looking more fit or more young. We secure ourselves and, and with, with more money because we fear death in its various forms. So now the only power such demonic forces can exert over those who belong to Christ is that of a criminal on the other side of the glass. Right? He can influence you with scary looks. He can still put a scare in you, but only if you allow it. In other words, when you fear death, decay, and just breakdowns in various forms, that might be a little Satan, but it's mostly you. Needing the power of the good news in your life. I fairly recently watched the newest version of Planet of the Apes. Uh, because neither the original with Charlton Heston, right, or nor the follow-up with Marky Mark Wahlberg, right, was sufficient to convince us of the dangers of monkeys taking over the world. All right, we needed more <laughs> because it could happen at any time. So uh, Hollywood gave us James Franco. And, and, and it's interesting, the science that drives this particular version of the Planet of the Apes in that the main protagonist's motivation and the reason why monkeys go ape is this gene therapy. And he introduces, if you've seen this movie, he, he tests it on the monkeys and it's supposed to help with Alzheimer's. And this gene therapy allows the brain to create its own cells in order to repair them. Which is very alluring, right? To such science and perhaps science fiction has been compelling for the same reason that stem cell research is at least compelling, if not controversial, that it's self-perpetuating life. Life that can give birth on its own. I mean, that is compelling. With no other cause can give life and birth to life on its own. We find this matter is compelling not only for all the possible cures for diseases, but also because we as human beings are always on the lookout. Anything that will do away with the disease of dysfunction, of failure, the disease of guilt, the disease of sin. We want one, a one-stop life producer that will cure all that ails us. Right, we want this in our lives. In various forms, we want it. All the emotional, spiritual, day-to-day -day baggage we carry around. We need something to 
fix that? Is it in the cross? Because while the cross may be great for eternity, if we're honest, most of the time we do not think the Bible, and more specifically the good news of the cross, is an immediate, curing, life producer for everyday life. For everyday stuff. Is this going to do it? Really? Is this it? Because I'm not feeling it. I don't understand what Jesus' death for me. I, I'm a Christian. I get that. What does this have to do with my everyday life and my everyday struggles? But there's great news about the good news. There's great news about the good news. Did you know that the good news is the only object outside of the Trinity, outside of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, that the Bible describes as having power in and of itself? In other words, so we as Christians, the church has power because God supplies it. But with the gospel, there's an innate power that God infuses into it. It's like, it's like the ring in Lord of the Rings. Infused into that ring is power. Turn over with me, if you will, to, to, to Colossians chapter 1. Turn the page just briefly. You'll see in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this, Of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. The verb here, bearing fruit, is what we call uh, the middle tense. In other words, uh, there is no other force that is causing it to act. Right? If a plant grows, you need sun and water. For us to grow, we need food. We need exercise if we hope to build muscle. There has to be some outside force to produce. But he's saying here, this gospel, this good news, produces fruit on its own. There's no other force causing it to act. The gospel has such potency in and of itself that it can produce fruit and multiply on its own. Nothing else like that in the world. Romans 1.16 puts this more simply where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. The gospel itself. There's nothing else apart from God that, that he speaks about something having this, this divine potency in and of itself. So if the Bible, if what it says is true, then the good news is the most immediate, accessible, one-stop shopping life producer around. Put away that advice that works so well that you'll, that you'll apply it to everything, that diet, vitamin, exercise that will finally make everything around you better. Put it away. You can still do it, but don't think that's a one-stop shopping, life-producing cure. It can only be found in the gospel. Power over philosophy. I want to conclude this morning by attempting to apply the love and power of the good news directly to real life gone wrong. Let's just think through some of the ways the gospel can be applied versus little, little philosophies, little bits of half-truth. For instance, severed, and these are just some things, okay? Severed and strained relationships. You could go with the advice that people will tell you. Man, you know what? Time heals all wounds. Which, by the way, it doesn't. People carry around wounds a long time. Or, you can go with the cross of Jesus Christ gives you the freedom to admit wrongdoing on your own and to overlook wrongs of others because you know you are right with the God of the universe. You know you're right with Him so you can admit you're wrong. You can overlook the wrong of others. There is power in that. Because of the good news. An identity crisis. Everyone at some point in their life 
wonders, is this really who I am or who I'm becoming? Maybe you, someone said something to you, and you wonder, is that really who I am? Or maybe you yourself have done something, is this who I am? Is this who I'm becoming? We all have this happen, and we get the advice in these moments, and you just need to find whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel complete. You can take that advice or be confident that through his death on the cross, you are a son or daughter to a father. You are a bride to a bridegroom. You are an heir to a family fortune because of what Jesus did on the cross. What about when you're wronged by someone? People will tell you, oh, you just got to blow them off. Ignore others, just blow them off. Or you can be honest with them. Talk about forgiveness and offer it in the name of Jesus Christ. When someone has been cruel, been vindictive, has been wrong, who else are they going to hear, I forgive you from? Except for a Christian who has life inside of him because of the gospel to offer forgiveness. No one else is going to say that. I went through, you know, I went to a card store recently and looked through like the I'm sorry section, which is very small, by the way. People don't say they're sorry, I'm not. So Hallmark doesn't have a long section on it. No one says, I forgive you. There's no forgiveness in there. Only, only in this letter. What about dealing with loss? Human loss, financial loss, animal loss, property loss, any kind of loss. You can either, quote, take the philosophy, find something to take your mind off of it. Or you can remind yourself and surround yourself with people who remind you that Jesus Christ, who had everything, became poor so that you might become rich. There is nothing more valuable you have than life with the God of this universe, with the master of the universe. He became poor. He lost everything, separated from God, sin of the world upon him, that you might become rich. So friends, you are not poor. No matter what you lose, you are rich. What about the fear of speaking, meeting new people? I'm just going to keep going here. You know, you could say and go with the philosophy, well, that's just who I am. I don't ever speak up. Or you can go with, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. Quoting Romans 8. If you know that you are God's through Christ's finished work on the cross, no one can take you down. Any failure becomes laughable in the light of the victory of Christ. You can't become better or worse by opening your mouth. In God's eyes. If you fail, you still rely on Christ's debit card. If you succeed, here's the amazing part, you still rely on Christ's debit card. Be right with God. Doesn't matter. Overcoming idolatry and addiction. So people say, well, you know what, you need balance in your life. Or you go with kill the idol. Kill the addiction with the cross. In his book, Closing the Window, he was speaking on matters of addiction to lust and pornography. Tim Chester gives a pretty cool paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states that God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, God saw Christ as sin. He became sin so that we might become right with God, because someone had to pay the debt. And so Chester says, on the cross, God treated Christ as a porn user. And paraphrasing 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, God made Jesus, I love this, who never looked with lust to be a porn addict for us so that in him we might become sexually pure. Be specific about that idolatry 
about that addiction. Spend time before the cross remembering and speaking actual sin and receiving real powerful forgiveness that Jesus can offer. And idolatry and addiction, it will die. But it won't die any other death except for crucifixion. It can't. Something else will pop up. Some other addiction. Except through the power of the good news. Everyday guilt and shame. You could go with, hey, everyone messes up. Right? People will tell you, don't feel guilty. Everybody messes up. Or you confess the real sin and then mock the guilt. The great reformer, one of my heroes, Martin Luther, he had this strange habit all right, of sometimes dialoguing with Satan. I don't know what this looked like. I don't want to get into it. But he described once how Satan laid a heavy condemnation upon him because of his sins, his wrongdoing before God, and he felt guilty. So Luther told Satan to list them all. List them all. And then, remind, and then he reminded him of some he'd forgotten. Then Luther laughed at Satan. Like Christ in this passage, Luther liked to mock Satan. And he said, hey, did you miss what was nailed to the cross? They're all there for the reading, and they're paid in full. So when you encounter everyday guilt and shame, yes, the, the sin is real, and we need to confess it to God and sometimes to other people if we've wronged them. But after we've done that, you can mock the guilt. When it comes back into your life, you say, man, I know I screwed that up. Mock it. Yeah, right, Satan. Did you not see? That was nailed to the cross. What about cynicism towards people in the world around you? People will say, well, oh, you just got to change your attitude. People are basically good. Or anyone bad can change instantaneously because of the power of the gospel. Think of it. When you're looking around the world, you say, man, this, this just stinks. And I'm just, I'm, I have a cynical attitude. Does that change because you just believe in people? No, it changes because you believe in the gospel, which can instantly transform anyone around you. Last one, when speaking to someone who doesn't share the hope that you possess. Yes, we wish to share it better. We wish to know how to answer their questions about suffering, evil, how the Bible was put together, why all religions are the same, slash man-made, slash meant to deceive people. But no answer to these questions, no polished response is as powerful as the straight-up good news. That God gave us life, and we spent his life doing our own thing. Jesus died to pay off our debt. It had to be paid and to credit us with his account. So that not only will we live with him, but we will live unshakably for him forever. I plead with you, friends, to trust once again the simple good news that could change lives, starting with your own. Let's pray. Lord, we began with this end in mind, and I think we all want to be that kind of unshakable, rooted, faithful, untouchable kind of person in the midst of trials, temptations, conflicts, and the pressures of life. We all want that. And so God, help us to buy into a power over philosophy. And remember that it, the hard work has already been done through Jesus' work on the cross. That's so amazing. God, this isn't going to help just to bring it up when moments arise, when we're at 4 p.m. bothered by guilt and shame, or when 
you know, someone wrongs us or out at night, and help it begin early each day, knowing that we have a holy God. We have a God who's given us life, and because of that, going before the cross and confessing how we've spent that life wrongly. And then, Father, receiving at the cross, receiving Jesus' forgiveness. And then praying and living. It's a reminder of the resurrection that Jesus then rose from the dead and defeated death in its various forms. And because of that, we can start applying this good news to all parts of our life. Father, help us identify which part of our life we need the gospel. Where is it, Lord? Where life has gone wrong, where can the good news be the power that triumphs and that cures? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.